morning about how, how do I see myself. And I, I was amazed, and when I get to the end of this message, um, I, I made a few extra notes that the Lord showed me in my devotions. It was, it was really exciting. I, I always loved the way my devotions sometimes, they're not structured, as you know. I just read three cha- chapters in the Old Testament, one chapter in the New Testament. Sometimes I'll, I'll be in the Old Testament and I'll go, well, that's really good, I don't want to stop, and I'll go a couple extra chapters. I have four chapters a day, and I, or sometimes I'm in the New Testament and I'll say, that's really good, and I, I do three chapters, and then I only do one in the Old. So it's not really structured. So it's not like planned out where I'm going to be in the Word on a given morning. And this morning, as I was in three books. I was in Ezekiel, Ezra, and the book of Revelation. All three readings had exactly to do with what I'm going to share with you this morning. And that just kind of blows my mind how God does that in our lives. How he intersects things so so uh, thoughtfully and so powerfully that we could never put together. So I want to just talk about how do you see yourself. Um, how do you see yourself this morning? Now, just think about that question, and not, not the way you see yourself in the mirror. We all have images of who we are right now, and, and you know this if you're older. When, you, when I'm talking to you, I see that 16-year-old teenager that I wasn't able to celebrate with with my sister because she was already gone, but I see, I see that, that 16, 18-year-old teenager with hair um, I'm, in, I'm in a pair of, uh, of, of Levi jeans, and I've got a, a broad-striped uh, white and blue T-shirt on, and then I've got a pair of Adidas uh, tennis shoes, uh, mustard yellow suede with the, four, the three or four stripes on the side. Come on, anybody? Huh, a few? No, no. Yeah, some of you go, what is Adidas? Anyway, um, <laughs> it was before Nike and everything else. And so I, I see myself in that... that, that Split frame. That's, that's why I see myself kind of like in a physical sense, even though when I look in the mirror, I, I'm not. But how do you see yourself in a spiritual and an emotional sense? How do you view your life each day? Do you see yourself as a, as a failure? Do you see yourself as someone that is loved? Or do you see yourself as someone who's forgotten? Really, the way that we see ourselves is going to really influence how we view the journey that we're on in life. If we see ourselves simply as broken and hopeless, we're just going to wander around in circles. But if we see ourselves as God's anointed, if we see ourselves as God sees us, then we're going to move on in life. Last week we talked about when life takes a course change, and and I shared with you personally from my heart. And, and I, I wrote down this thought, and this could be a message in itself, but listen to this and just, just keep this on one side of your brain while I share with you on the other side of your brain the rest of the morning. But life is not a solo journey. It is a community migration. I want you to think about that because it's not only important about how you see yourself, but in this migration, it's important in how you see each other. You see, we're all in a journey of life, but we're not in it alone, are we? And the whole fallacy in our culture today that it really doesn't matter what I do as long as I don't hurt anybody, has anyone ever heard that statement made? Is really so false because I want to tell you that no matter what you do, it is going to influence others. It's going to touch somebody else. It's going to touch your children. It's going to touch your neighbor. It's going to touch your coworker. You cannot live your life independently of others. Life is not a solo journey. Sorry, Lone Ranger. <laughs> you had to have Tonto, didn't you? It is a community migration. So I want to talk about just three simple things this morning from 1 Peter 1, 1 through 10. And I want to talk about how God sees you and I and how God sees us as a community of faith. So let's look at 1 Peter 2, 1 to 3. It says, so get rid of all malice. Again, I'm reading from the Tree of Life version in this study. 
So get rid of all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all lashon hara in the, in the Hebrew. But it really that's the word for evil speech. And and why in the Tree of Life Bible sometimes they will have the Hebrew word and mostly they'll have the English words. And and I realize that when they throw in a Hebrew word, it was because that was a word that is well known. That is like a, an idiom that people use. And so. This word for evil speech, it, it had to be something that they struggled with. So don't, don't have malice, don't have deceit, don't have hypocrisy or envy or Lashan Hara. I think there was a lot of Lashan Hara this week during the Senate hearings, wasn't there? Hmm. Number two, verse two, as newborn babes long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow towards salvation... Has anybody ever seen a baby, man, when it gets on that bottle? I mean, a young baby, just an infant, you know, and, and, uh, and, and very soon, and, and keep Kendra in your prayers because she uh, looks like Tuesday's the day if she doesn't have the baby before. But when you see those newborns in that bottle, Hannah was, a, we called her a flailer. And, and the reason why we called her a flailer is when she got hungry, she screamed, and her arms and her legs were flailing around. And it was really hard to feed the kid. I mean, because you try to get the bottle in there and she'd knock it away. And, and, and you, you keep trying to, you know, get it. Come on, kid, you're hungry. Get it. And then finally she'd get that bottle. And, I mean, <laughs> then, then you couldn't get it away from her. And uh, she just really went at it. Well, it says that we, like newborn babes, should long for the spiritual milk that we may grow towards salvation. And then verse 3, now that you've tasted that the Lord is good. So I want to just unpack this. God sees me as a new creation in Christ. That's who you are. Now, you don't always feel that way, do you? You don't always feel like a new creation, especially when you wake up and look in the mirror. You know, I mean, this hair doesn't get this way just without any care. Brian knows. And it takes work and polish and some wax and a a buffer. I mean, it doesn't get this way overnight. So you are a new creation in Christ. Don't let the enemy or anyone else tell you anything differently. And because you're a new creation... There's things that have changed in you. You are adopting new attitudes. Now, do you realize that the normal thing for you to do is to walk in these new attitudes? That when you begin to slip back into those things of malice, deceit, hypocrisy, envy, or evil speech, that you're actually being abnormal. Think about that. The normal thing for you to do is to walk in the love of God and to walk as this new creation of God and adapting these or adopting these new attitudes in life. You're doing that every day as you walk in Christ. And He sees you in that light. You need to begin to see yourself in that light. When I was a young, young man, about your guys' age, I worked at Alpha Beta. And I worked in the frozen food department for a while. And I had a truck driver who would deliver uh, to, to me, and I'd have to unload his load and bring it into the freezer. And this guy was just filthy. I mean, filthy mouth. I mean, everything coming out of his mouth was, was just uh, this and this. You know, you know, every word. And so I didn't say a word. I was really nice to him, but I didn't say a word. I just would unload his thing. And then one day he said something about God. And I started to talk, and he went, Aha! I knew you were one of those church people. But do you know what happened? He never swore again when he delivered a load. And every time he came, we talked about Jesus. You know, not only is God changing our attitudes in life, but when we walk the way we are as new creations, our new attitudes begin to influence the attitudes of of others. I never got to lead that guy to the Lord, but at least I got to plant the seeds. Number two, I'm developing a new appetite in life. 
As a newborn baby, man, I'm going for that bottle of God's Word, the milk of the Word, and I'm hungry for the Word of God. Now, sometimes when we've been Christians for a long time, that grows stale in our life. You have a favorite eating place you like? All of you do. And, and you go, and you go, and you go, and then, then all of a sudden you've gone too much, and you just feel like not going anymore for a while. You know, sometimes that's that way. You know, and when, when, when the Word of God becomes that way in your life, you know, you need to just go to the Lord and just cry out, Lord, make, make your Word fresh and new to me. He will. Lord, give me the heart of a child again. Give me the heart of a newborn babe again. Let me hunger for that pure spiritual milk so I can grow into salvation. And I want to tell you, I've heard people, I'm not saying this pridefully. Please don't misunderstand me. Please hear my heart. I haven't had a dull moment in the Word of God for the past 10 years. And I mean that with all my heart. Because every time I open that book, I know he's going to meet me. And every time I open that book, I know there's something that I haven't seen. There's something that I haven't known. There's something about the Lord that I've never discovered. And you know what? As long as I'm alive, that will be my case every day of my life. Oh yeah, Kirk, well you just read the begats. You got something out of that? I did today. (laughs) Hallelujah. I did today. I got to that. You know what? I'm going to tell you this. I got to it in Ezra, and and I'm going to tell you what it means later on, but I got to the whole thing about all the people that went and recording all the... And I thought to myself, just skip over that and keep, you know, jump over. You get a free chapter under your belt without even reading it. I said, no. I know this may seem a little ridiculous, but I said, when I read the Bible through each year, I'm going to read every single word. So I read every single word. And when I got done, the Lord spoke to me, even out of the begat type stuff. That's really fun. Number three, I'm discovering a new fulfillment in life. If you've ever battled with sin in your life, and all of us have battled with sin. And and the pull to sin sometimes seems stronger than the pull to light. The pull of darkness is familiar. If you you lived in brokenness, if if you were bound by something in your life, and you got victory in Christ, but then you've gone through a difficult time, it's easy to get back on that merry-go-round, that, 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 um, what do you call it? Well, the merry-go-round or the the Ferris wheel. And, And you just don't seem like you can get off. And you, and you get back on because it's familiar. And sometimes we do destructive things to ourselves just because they're familiar and they're comfortable. Uh, a woman who is abused by her husband and, 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 get, and sometimes without working through that or getting healed in that in their lives with the Lord and with counseling will... Uh, leave that husband and marry the same type of abusive husband all over again. Why? Because it's familiar. Is it healthy? No. But it's familiar. And so God is wanting us to find a new way of fulfillment. And the fulfillment that we're finding is in Christ. And when we taste and see that the Lord is good, when you... When you taste and see that the Lord is good, there's nothing about sin that can satisfy. And if you want victory over sin, what you need to do is drink the spiritual milk of God's Word and grow in Christ and keep your flame alive in Him. And the more you grow closer to Him, the less the power of sin will have over your life. And so at the end of his life, J. Vernon McGee could say, with confidence and truth. The devil doesn't bother me much anymore because he knows I'm a lost cause for him. May we all say that about ourselves. The Bible says this. Let's look at the next verse. The next verse is verse 4. 
as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but chosen by God and precious. As you come to him, a living stone. So let's, let's, let's look at that again. Now, here's how else God sees you. And you need to see yourself. You are a blockhead. <laughs> no, 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 no. I, ladies, I don't. Yeah, I, I know, Pastor Kirk. I've been telling him that for years. No, you are, you are a building block in God's house. Well, we are kind of blockheads sometimes, guys. Let's just admit it. You're a building block in God's house. Now, that's important. I remember, I, I wish I would have done this now, but for a while there, years ago, they were selling these little things where you could get your family's picture engraved on a little tile. And when you go in through Epcot at Disney World, they have these things leaning up and, and you put your little tile in there and you see all these families coming up and go, there we are, there, oh, there we are, you know. We, but um, I'm cheap. Anyway, um, <laughs> well, listen, when you pay that much to go into Disney, I'm not going to give them money to put me on a little tile. But then when I see it and I think, oh, maybe I should have, but anyway. There's still time. <laughs> Jesus is both the foundation of our life and he's the cornerstone. And I thought about that. How many times have you read that, the cornerstone? How many times have we sung the cornerstone? And you know what? When I think of a cornerstone, you know what I think of? I think of that stone we have over there at the Family Life Center with something engraved in it. You know, it's, it's like a decorative stone. But that isn't what a cornerstone is. Now, I'm not a, I'm not a bricklayer and I, I, I'm not a concrete guy, or I'm not a builder. Uh, I, I'm, just, I'm just me, and, and so I had to look this up. But in, in building a brick home or a building back then, the cornerstone was the first stone laid on the foundation by which they laid every other stone and kept the building true to its design. Now, I can, I can identify with that because I laid tile one time, and I actually did a pretty good job. I was really kind of proud of myself. I was, it took like 10 times longer than anyone else ever laying tile in their entire life, but it was a small extra room that we had built in our home in Upland, California. Or, yeah, no, Wadjie Cucamonga. And I mean, my wife, I remember she was nervous about it. She said, you really think you can do this? And I said, yeah, I can do this. And so I snapped the chalk lines, and, and I got everything ready. But it all had to start out with one tile. One tile at an intersection by which all the other tiles were laid. And if that tile wasn't true and square, the room would have looked terrible. That's our lives. Jesus is not only the foundation of everything that we are because he shed his blood for us, because he died for us, because he gave so much for us, because he's redeemed us, but he is the actual cornerstone of our lives. And, and so we are now building blocks. We're not just, we're not just um, a picture that he hangs on the wall. We're part of his body. We're part of his house. We're integral to what he wants to do in the kingdom of God. You are that precious stone. And he hasn't just arbitrarily picked you and said, you know, I'm, uh, here's a good looking stone. Well, it's just kind of like, just lay it there. No, you go to the buildings in Weatherford, the buildings downtown Weatherford, one of them on the corner, you know, the one that had to be replaced because um, it, it wasn't structurally sound anymore. Those buildings would never meet code um, ever in California. They would have been torn down years ago, all of them. All of downtown Weatherford would have been torn down years ago in California because those buildings, I don't even know how they stand, but they're just random limestone rocks slapped on top of another limestone rock with mud. I mean, I don't, they didn't have any rebar, did they, Terry? I don't see any rebar in them. You know, and I go in there, sometimes I'm in yesterday's, you know, eating a sandwich or something, I'm looking at these walls, I'm going... Because I'm from California, I'm ready for the building to go, 
One time at the Northridge Quake in California, if you remember that one, there was this, this auto parts store. And this is a true story. And this auto parts store was before code. It was made of brick. And what happened is when the earthquake hit, all the walls fell down. Everyone was in there. And the ceiling, the roof fell down. And fortunately, what does an auto parts store have? Racks. Right? All of the parts are on racks. And the racks caught the roof and everyone lived. And when you, when you saw the pictures of it, it was this roof on these open racks and it was like the walls of Jericho. They just fell down. And so I look at that and I said, man, you know, I don't know how they did that back then. But when I look at that, there's no rhyme or reason to it. It's not like these blocks laid with, 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 a, with a pattern and, and squared. But they're just like one, one dirty stone on top of another dirty stone. Well, that isn't the way God builds his house. You... He chose, and you know, when Solomon built his temple, it says there was not a sound of a hammer or a saw or any tool in the building of his temple. All of the rocks were hewn away on site by master, master stonemen that cut them exactly to fit. They were cut and polished and perfected and laid. You are now being cut and polished, and perfected, and laid into the groundwork and the building of the house of God. And that's something that's precious, dear ones. You may say, well, I'm not a very good, you know, uh, stone. What, is, what can God do, for, do with me? I want to tell you, it doesn't matter what kind of stone you are. In God's house, you are precious. The cornerstone is Jesus, and you now are living stones. It says, no one can lay any other foundation, 1 Corinthians 3.11, than that which is also laid, which is Yeshua the Messiah, Jesus the Christ. Verse 5, you also, as living stones, are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Messiah Yeshua. Now, what happens with this is that as a living stone, we come to the cornerstone, and when the cornerstone touches us, it changes our lives. He gives us a new purpose, and we've talked about this so much. You've now been called to be a holy priest and to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Why do you go to church? Well, I'm glad you're at church, but the real reason you go has nothing to do with this message and it has nothing to do with the pastor of the church. The reason why you should go to church is because you are a priest of God, and God calls you to come to offer up spiritual sacrifices. You're called to come into worship. You're called to come into pray. You're called to come into minister. What you did in these prayer circles, which we started so many years ago, is to minister to one another, and it proclaims that you are priests of God, that you are the ministers of God, that you are here to give your life as a sacrifice. We live in such a, a uh, society that is so consumer-minded, and we've made the church a consumer-oriented organization rather than a living, vital, ministering band of priests. God didn't initially want a temple built because God's people are always moving together to where God is calling them to go. And he traveled with them in this large band of God's people moving with the presence of God. That's what we're supposed to be. And when we forget that, when we think that God is here for us, so that we can come to get something from God and just get blessed of God and just receive a blessing or something. We're, we're always looking for something from God rather than having such an awesome privilege. That's like a, bringing a child into the world and just setting them there and saying, okay, now entertain me, child. No, when you're a parent, you 
have a child because you want to share your love with someone, but you are, you are given the role of what? A servant. Your whole role is feeding, bathing, feeding, bathing, changing, feeding, bathing, changing, rocking, talking Google talk to it. But, you're, but it's work, isn't it? It's a joyful work, isn't it? It's a precious work, isn't it? But it's work. Sometimes when you're done with the day after that newborn, you look at each other and you just kind of smile and you say, see you tomorrow. <laughs> when we, we didn't know anything about raising kids, nobody does. We're driving down the road. Hannah gets into a fine, a cry, fine, a crying fit, a fine crit. <laughs> and she was also in a crying fit. And she's, she's wailing and you know, flaying like she always does. And, and Karen's trying everything she can, and we pull the car over, and we look at each other in horrification. <laughs> and Karen, with tears, says, what do we do? And I go, I don't know. <laughs> but we survived. But we were there to serve, not to be served. Did she bring joy into our lives over and over again? But we were there to serve. And as Christians, we need to recapture this picture that God sees us as his priests and as his ministers. And he calls us to come together to minister, to serve, and to give. You are so special. And listen to Ephesians 2, 20-22 in the New Living Translation. It says, Together we are his house, built on the foundation of apostles and prophets And the cornerstone is Christ Jesus himself. We are carefully joined together in him, a holy temple for the Lord. Through him, you Gentiles are also being made part of this dwelling where God lives by his spirit. I love it. You are a living stone. You are a holy priest. And you are to offer up spiritual sacrifices. Verses 6 to 8. For it says in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone, a chosen precious cornerstone, Whoever trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now the value is for you who keep trusting, but for those who do not trust. The stone which the builder rejected, this one has become the chief cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, they stumble because they are disobeying the word. To this they were also appointed. The cornerstone in life will either support you or it will crush you. I thought of doing a visual, but I didn't have time to do it. But here's what I thought of doing is having uh, two cinder blocks, one on the altar with a cup on top of it, and the other, the cup on the altar with the cinder block on top of it. When we're not surrendered to the Lord, we're the cup on the table with the cinder block on top of it. Eventually, if we don't surrender to the Lord that block is going to drop. What's going to happen to that cup? It's going to be crushed to smithereens. You see, the living stone will either give us life or it will judge us. And it's never God's intent to have to see us in judgment. God loved the world so much that He gave His only begotten Son that everyone who believes in Him will not perish but have eternal life. God sent not His Son into the world to judge the world, but to save the world through Him. There is no judgment against anyone who believes in Him, but anyone who does not believe in Him has already been judged for not believing in God's one. Number three, I am His precious possession with an eternal purpose. I am his precious possession with an eternal purpose. Do you realize that God looks upon you as his precious possession? Hmm. I remember when uh, that was how I viewed my life. Uh, Not my life, my wife. Forgive me. My wife. That's the way we normally do when we're dating. Think about it. Go back to those early days. She was not my possession, but she was my precious 
gift. She was, she was the very center of everything. When, when, when you fall into romantic love, it's like everything eclipses. And, there's no, and you can't see anything else in front of you except the person that you're in love with. That's a wonder that God gives us romantic love when we fall in love. And we are able to focus on each other and learn about each other and grow with each other. As the years go by, that love does change and, and it deepens and it grows and it's expressed in a different way. But you know what? God never falls out of that romantic love with us. Isn't that an awesome thing to think about? It, the Song of Solomon is a, is a picture of God's love for us along with many other uh, things. But it says that, behold, he's peering through the lattice, beholding us, gazing at us. God just, God just sits on his throne and he, he gazes at you. And he says, oh, I love Leo. You are my precious possession. I love you so much. He says, I love Jason. Jason, you are my precious possession. I love you so much. What did you two do to deserve that? Or any of us, for that matter? Nothing. Nothing. That's the amazing thing about it. That's the transforming thing about it. You see, we have a new position in Christ. We're chosen. Verses 9 to 10, you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So you're chosen, you're a royal priest, you're a holy person, a holy nation, you're God's own possession, you're a child of light. What did you do to deserve that? Nothing. But you know what? That's who you are in God's eyes. And so when you begin not seeing yourself like that, when you begin to buy into the lies of the enemy who's telling you you're worthless, you're broken, you're hopeless, you're, you're without direction, there's nothing that God can do with you. You're buying into the lie of the enemy because God says, wait a minute, he or she is my chosen possession. I died for him. I died for her. My blood covers him. My blood covers her. I see him and I see her justified in Christ. Well, I want to tell you, if that's the way God sees me, who am I to argue with God? <laughs> if God's for me, who can be against me? I mean, I don't want to stand there and say, well, you know, Lord, you're, not, you're really wrong about this. You know, because I'm really a mess. He said, you were a mess. But now you're my child. Look at the next verse, verse 10. Once you were, once you were a mess, <laughs> once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You were shown no mercy, but now you have been shown mercy. So I have a new purpose in Christ. I'm called to proclaim his praises. I'm called to live a life of worship and praise, and it's my highest calling and purpose. You know, there's nothing that I can do that is more important than to live a life of worship. Unto him, not just singing songs, not just the five we do, not just my prayer time, but everything I do to give glory to God, to let my light shine, to reflect what he has declared over me, even though I'm going to be honest with you, when I look in the mirror, I don't see what he's declared over me. Do you hear what I'm saying? I make mistakes and I'm reminded that my feet are made of clay, even though he's declared that they're made of gold. He's declared me to be justified, and I sometimes feel like a broken sinner. But I need to been, realize that the only thing that, that separates those two concepts is whether I'm going to embrace mercy or reject mercy. And if I embrace mercy... <laughs> I can agree with God. But if I reject mercy, 
I'm going to be always living in a deficit. In a deficit. Oh, there's so many scriptures I could read. I want to read just one, Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8. Sometimes when you hear this, it's like a message about, we're king's kids, we're, we're, we're the head and not the tail. And, and then people get their hands in their lapels and they start strutting their stuff, you know. You know, we're like, we're like, we're like on the, uh, we're victors in Christ and we start thinking that we're something. And that's dangerous. Because I want to tell you, this is what God says to his people. He said, um, oh, by the way, Kirk, Deuteronomy 7, 7 to 8, the revised Kirk version. <laughs> oh, by the way, Kirk, I didn't set my love on you or choose you because you were uh, greater than anybody else. Because really, in all honesty, Kirk, um, you really lacked a lot. But I chose you for this one reason and this one reason only. Because I love you. And because I made an oath to you and I brought you out of your bondage with a mighty hand and I've redeemed you from your sin by the blood of my son because I had mercy on you. That's why you are precious in my sight. It wasn't anything I did. And so the conclusion is, is in verse 10. Then I'm going to share with you my devotion ending because it was so powerful. It says, we'll never really start living up to the full potential in our lives until we see ourselves the way God sees us. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You were not shown mercy, but you have been shown mercy. So I, I was in the book of Ezekiel this morning. And I was reading about the dry bones. I love that chapter. How many of you love reading about the dry bones in Ezekiel? What struck me this time was not how God brought the dry bones to life, but was what the dry bones represented. The dry bones represented the children of Israel who thought they were nothing, they thought they were forgotten. They thought they were rejected. They thought they had no future. That they had failed God. That, that, that you know, it's like, okay, I, I failed God just one too many times. Now I'm out. And they were walking around with their heads hanging down, feeble knees, their hands dragging. And they said, these bones will never live. And God said, do you think these bones will never live? And Ezekiel said, well, only you know, Lord. And he said, speak to these bones. He said, prophesy, spirit, come into these bones. And he said, I see something in these bones that they do not see. I want to tell you, God sees something in you this morning that you don't see, that no one else sees, and you need to hear and listen to God. And when you look at others, you need to hear that for them, too. The second thing I was reading was Ezra's genealogy. I thought to myself, why in the world is this important? I mean, who cares if these three people... I mean, here you got a thousand people from this group. Yeah, that's a good group. Then you got like three people from this guy. Well, why does God include those three people from this guy that I don't even know who this guy is? Because everybody's important to God. Every single person's important to Him. You think you're not important to God? If you were the only person on the face of this earth, Jesus would have died for you, just for you, to save you. He would have been born a baby. He would have grown up. He would have gone through His ministry. If it was just Bob Hageman that He could redeem, He would have done it for you, Bob. Just for you. And just for you. And then... I read in the book of Revelation. And I want to make sure I don't misquote the church. There's some good churches in here and some not so good churches in here. And the church of, of Pergamos, 
was kind of a, a little wobbly on their theology and a little wobbly on their doctrine. And they were both going after the doctrine of Balaam, which was, you know, looking for profit and gain out of the gospel, and the doctrine of the Nicolaitans, which is clergy over laity. And they were kind of a mess. But there was a group of them that, that had, um, you know, kind of stayed faithful. And, and in verse 16, he says, Repent, or else I will come to you quickly and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Then he says this, He who has an ear, hear what the Spirit says to the church of Pergamos. It doesn't say that. It says, Hear what the Spirit says to the churches. That means God's speaking to all of us. He said, I will give some of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Your new identity in Christ, how God sees you, is not written on paper. It's written and engraved in stone. When God gave the Ten Commandments, He wrote it by Himself with His own finger, and He engraved it in stone. And when God looks at you, and He sees who you are and your potential as an individual, as a church, as a family, He writes it in stone. No one can change it. No one can take it away because He gives it to you to hold to your heart. And that's how God sees you. Worship team, come back up as we close. Lord, help us to see each other the way God sees us. Let's stand as we prepare to worship and close. (coughs) Lord, I come, I confess, bowing here, I find my rest. Without you, I fall apart. You're the one that has my heart. Oh, I need you. Oh, I need you. Every hour I need you. I want defense. I rise just Oh, I need you. Hey.
so we need him every day. I'm going to tell you something. This is reality. You know this, but I just need to remind you. You're going to sin again. You're going to say the wrong thing to somebody again and hurt their feelings. You're going to miss something in your life and get tripped up. I mean, how do you know that, Kirk? Well, I just do. Because I'm the same. And when I do, the Bible says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. But if we sin, and when we sin, now that's not a license to sin. Do you know the difference? It doesn't mean just go out and live sloppy lives. And, and, and I'm not talking about sloppy agape here. I'm talking about the human condition. And when we sin, it says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the point I want to make to you in this closing remark is that when you do fail, God's opinion of you does not change. He didn't call John, and then John does something stupid, and then he goes, well, man, John, if I would have known you were going to do that, I wouldn't have called you. He knew all the stupid stuff Get comfort from this, Bonnie. All the stupid stuff that John was going to do, and I was going to do. Yeah. He knew that when he chose you. And me too. That's his mercy. Man, that's his mercy. We need to fall upon the mercy of God, and we need to say, Lord, I can't do this. You see me a certain way. Sometimes I don't see it. I need you. Lord, I need you. Every hour I need you. When sin runs deep, your grace is more. Your mercy is more. Of me, cause his day is long dead and gone. 
John saw you in all of his, your glory. He fell to his face as a dead man. But you took him by the hand and you lifted him up and you said, Be not afraid, it is I. And Lord, right now you take us each by the hand and you lift us up and you say, Be not afraid, it is I. And I've redeemed you. I've called you. I've declared you to be my son and my daughter. I see you clothed in my righteousness and you are my precious possession. And the enemy cannot touch that which I am doing in your life. And the stain and the shame has been broken and washed away. The chains are now broken. You are redeemed. Lord, help us to go from this place with our hearts filled with mercy and grace and our heads lifted up to the heavens knowing that we are who You said we are. May we see ourselves not in defeat, but walking daily in an ever-growing outpouring of Your mercy and grace and entering into victory upon victory. We are overcomers in Christ Jesus who died for us and who loved us. Now bless your people. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make His face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up His countenance upon you and grant you shalom. Go in His peace. You are precious in His sight.